Our guest today is a musician, party host, and venue owner responsible for one of the coolest venues in New York City, Secret Loft, where you could see everything from comedy nights to burlesque and aerial. You could see him running around, making sure everything is in perfect order. Outside of that, you could see him performing as part of the experimental pop duo Strangers on the Internet. I am happy to have with me today the wonderful Alex Neuhausen. Yes. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. To start things off, can you tell me a little bit about your pre-Secret Loft days? Specifically, are you originally from the city or did you end up here? So I am from Northern Virginia. Originally, I grew up in the suburbs. I went to college at the University of Virginia. I'm much older than I look. I think my lifestyle has kept me looking pretty young. Okay. I also went to graduate school, which does preserve you very well, especially (laughs) if you work in a basement. So I graduated college in 2005. I went to Stanford. I got a PhD in electrical engineering from 2005 to 2012. I lived in Portland, Oregon for one winter. Decided I wanted to move back to the East Coast. Portland really wasn't for me. Portland was almost like a slower-paced Palo Alto, San Francisco. So I've heard. And I'm very much the opposite. Decided to move to New York City because I had some friends from high school had moved to the city who I'd kept in touch with. And then my best friend, co-owner of Secret Loft, Lily Wolfson, uh, is originally from upstate New York, and she was planning to move back to New York City around that time as well. We met in the Bay Area, and so we kind of coordinated, and we both moved to New York City in 2012. Have you always been like a nightlife person? So I'll say the the skill set of uh, working in a lab and like kind of supervising your own research program for several years and the attention to detail that's required. If you're going to be an engineer, it actually makes you great at running a venue because you very much learned to kind of like jerry-rig basically stuff that you need, right? If you're working in a lab on some experiment, you need to do some measurement, you have to build like the little circuit board to take the measurement you need. So if you're working in a venue and you need a lighting system, sure, you could go try to hire somebody to do it. But if you're pretty good at, I don't know, reading manuals, you put together your own thing. So it's been really applicable. Being a good engineer helps you do a lot of stuff, but running a venue particularly and all the attention to detail, it helps. How did the first Secret Loft come about then? So while I was in graduate school and going back even you know prior to that, I play guitar and bass guitar, and I also do music production. When Lily Wolfson and I met in late 2005, early I think it was early 2006, We've had a couple different bands together, so I used to play guitar in it, and she would sing and play a keyboard. We had a drummer, bass player, and had this four-piece band in San Francisco in the Bay Area in the late 2000s, which was called Hey Young Believer, Hmm. uh, which you can also, I think, still find on Spotify. It's out there. So yeah, we'd been playing music. The winter that I lived in Portland, Oregon, around the winter of 2011-2012, I was a DJ because I had picked up a bunch of gear living in the Bay Area, so I had my own PA system, so I DJed a couple parties. And then moved to New York, found some other artists who, because I had a bunch of gear, I needed a, a place to live where I could store all this stuff. So I found some guys who were also musicians who lived in an unheated garage in Williamsburg. And at that time, Williamsburg wasn't over yet, but it was like still had, it was getting cleaned up. So the summer I moved in in 2012, I drove out with a like a 16 foot box truck that was filled with amps and like my PA and music gear and had thrown like a queen-size mattress on top of that and all my clothes and everything. So I, I got to move into this big garage that was awesome to live in during the summer. So it was on North 10th Street in Union. There's now a restaurant there called, I think, Lilia. 
around the corner from Jimmy's Diner. Over the 8 used to be right, right around there. So that, at the time, it was a block that was very much under construction. There's now giant condos around it on three corners. By the time they were running the pile drivers to drive the foundation for that. So every morning around 7 a.m., I would wake up and this super loud banging. That's lovely. <laughs> well, it made it great because then when we, if, you know, if we had band practice, for example, and we, we had a big steel garage roll-up door and would open it up directly onto the sidewalk and could have band practice and... We weren't really louder than the construction, so huh. we didn't get many noise complaints. Compared to Secret Loft currently, like, what was this manifestation of Secret Loft like? Yeah, so that you can imagine, right? In, in Unheated Garage in Williamsburg, mm-hmm. we've got a band. My roommates have a band. Just musicians over there hanging out all the time. And so ironic that it wasn't a loft then. It was a garage, but it was big. It uh, had a nice high ceiling. So it was really... We'd throw house shows, you know, and so you'd we'd buy a keg, charge ten bucks. A bunch of friends would come over. Maybe word would spread. We had a couple. We had like a July Fourth party that was like you know crazy mayhem. And yeah, we'd have you know four or five bands playing. Everybody hang out. So even around that time, because I'd been playing shows for you know years and years at that point with my my group, and same with the guys I lived with. And there is kind of a trade off you make when you play at a venue anywhere. But but also particularly in New York City, I think, because it's so busy and competitive here, where the booker may listen to what your band sounds like, but they are very busy. And often they work for several different venues, and they're just putting shows together. They're filling out bills. If you come to them with a, a planned out bill, they'll probably book you guys. If you promise, you'll bring 50 people to the bar. So those are fun to play, but you got to get your friends to come out to a bar and hang out and see some other bands. And maybe the booker just put a metal band on the bill that's before your experimental pop group, and then there's like a rapper afterwards. So you start putting together your own bills so you can at least play with your friends and bands that sound like you, and it's a night that people want to hang out at. But once you're doing that work, if you have a PA in your apartment, you might as well just put the show on yourself. So that's what we started doing. And then there's more money because it doesn't have to go to the venue. It goes to you and all your friends. Mm-hmm. And it's more fun because once the show's over, everybody can hang out. What were some of like the initial challenges of running this like venue so new york city i will say is a great place to try to get away with this kind of thing if you're going to do house shows if you're going to be loud and live in a garage in williamsburg and it's 2012 and on one side of us was an actual auto garage where people weren't living uh, and on the other side of us was a it was a factory that made plastic bottle lids <laughs> so we had no direct neighbors it was occasionally if we were really wild someone from two blocks over might walk over and be like can you guys please please turn it down (laughs) or just close your garage door so i don't have to hear this but that's really it it's it's worrying about bothering the neighbors police coming by the nypd to their credit they've always been pretty reasonable with us um and this is over a seven-year history going back to house parties or whatever how did this like second iteration Mm -hmm. of secret laugh come about then So I lived in the auto garage in 2012, which at some point we made a Facebook page and we're like, we can at least post the shows here. And it was just not even a regular thing. Every two months or something, we'd like organize ourselves and have a have a little show. And one of the guys I lived with, too, was really into lighting. So he got to test out his lighting rigs and stuff. It was a good symbiotic relationship. But living in an unheated garage over the winter was absolutely miserable. So it did have heat, but it had no insulation. So we ran the numbers and it cost something like $1,000 a month if we wanted heat. 
So instead, we kept it at 50 degrees. So I would be in my room with a, a little electric heater. And when I wanted to go make a sandwich or something or have heat up tea, I would have to put on my winter coat and like walk out to the kitchen. So that was a miserable experience. So around the, the summer after like, you know, the one year of my lease was up, I went looking for other places. I don't know how many of your listeners have heard of the McKibben Lofts. I don't know. It probably isn't famous anymore, but it once was infamous for being kind of the closest you could get in New York City to a state of anarchy Mm -hmm. in that there weren't really rules or people who enforced requirements for what you did. It very much was there are other people around, there are neighbors, and you could be a terrible neighbor and your neighbors could be terrible neighbors. It's a converted textile factory off the L train, also in Brooklyn. And the landlords, when they decided to, I guess the textile business wasn't working out in the 80s or something, and they let a bunch of artists start moving in, and they kind of subdivided the building into these thousand square foot 50 by 20 blocks and they said you build your rooms whatever you want to do i moved into an apartment that was a four bedroom and not legal bedrooms because they didn't have exterior windows but you know they were rooms and so i got there a little late actually that was 2013 but in the late 2000s the mckibben lofts in that area of east williamsburg was called hipster hollywood and you could run into like diplo or grimes or like uh, a lot of those kind of electro wave indie bands yeah we're in the area around that time and still even when i was there it was kind of a hotbed of like there were music there were parties all the time you could walk around the building on a saturday night and just randomly stumble into four or five different parties there'd be live music somewhere so this is exactly why people move to New York City. You're never alone, right? There's always something. When did you end up in the current iteration of Secret Loft? Yeah, so it's to not get weeded down in the historical details. So I was in uh, the McKibben Lofts for three years. Around that time, we kind of not professionalized, but we like worked out the kinks of a lot of the models. So we set up like I built a stage in that apartment and got the PA working. I bought an actual mixer. We got some basic stage lighting. I would the mixing booth was a dining room table that <laughs> I set up on top of, but uh, we were there for three years. Around that time, while that was going on, I had some friends who were aspiring stand-up comedians, and they asked, "Could we host a free comedy show?" So we started doing that, and then I started working a lot with this guy named Chris Carr, who runs a. It's kind of an artist collective called Brooklyn Wildlife, mm-hmm. and he happened to be my neighbor across the street. I was in two five five McKibben, and he was in two forty eight McKibben. So we did a lot of events together, and it became kind of a monthly thing almost. Usually it would be like the last weekend of the month, we have a Friday comedy show followed by a Saturday like party with live music and then a DJ. And that really let us, yeah, really work out kind of and establish this big network of artists and bands that we knew and met a bunch of comedians. And then that lasted three years. For one year, we were in another converted textile factory because it had a separated basement. So we're like, finally, we won't have to use our living room to throw these shows and move all the furniture. We actually had a downstairs, what used to be the boiler room of a factory. It was a very cool layout because it had this sort of rised terrace around the edge and then almost like a center, like lowered area. Almost like a gladiator fight could happen there. But it was great for like having shows. It had this intimate feeling. It had its own separate entrance that went out to this back alleyway. So we were just there for a year because the landlords absolutely hated. <laughs> because unlike the McKibben Lofts where they were kind of laissez-faire, whatever happens. I remember once talking to the super of the McKibben Lofts and he said, uh, I get these noise complaints, but what can I do? <laughs> I was like, tell them to stop making noise. He's like, ah, they don't listen. <laughs> so, uh, But the landlords in our uh, 41 Varick Avenue was the other location. They did care. They didn't want the city nosing around. 
We soundproofed that entire basement, took a ton of work, but even then they would review the security cameras. They'd be like, why did 100 people go to your apartment on Friday evening? And I was like, I don't know. Did anyone complain about the noise? Like, <laughs> no, but stop bringing all these people to the, you know, this resident. Well, it's supposed to be a commercial building was the irony. I was like, I'm the only one here actually trying to run a business. All these other people are living here. They like, I'm, I'm in the right. But anyway, they weren't going to renew my lease. I wanted to continue living there. Right around that time, this was summer 2017, probably many of your listeners have heard of Baby Castles because they do a lot of, uh, produce a lot of shows and do creative stuff tied in with a lot of the NYU student body. Mm-hmm. Baby Castles left. They had a location at 137 West 14th Street and decided they wanted this basement space. And they're now at, I believe, 145 West 14th Street. So they just moved like three doors down. But I got word through a friend of mine who knew the landlord of 137 West 14th that it, w- it was going to be vacant, but he wanted a performing arts space to move in. Thank you to them for, for also <laughs> not, not, uh, not pissing off the landlord so much that he would never have a performing arts space. Considering that people were there before they were doing like performance stuff, how much did you have to change about the space? So we actually did. We changed it quite a bit. And that at least we, you might say we refinished it. A big part of that is because our programming differs a bit from what Baby Castles really is an art gallery and performance space. Mm-hmm. Since we had it down, really, the, the comedy shows and live music, we wanted to almost professionalize things and be able to walk in, turn on the lights, and 30 minutes later have a, a show going. It was myself and Lily, who runs the space, have day jobs. Uh, so it needed to be something we could come by on an evening, get there at 6, and have a show you know, with doors at 7.30. So... The changes we did, we made it, it feels more, a lot more like a black box theater now. Like we brought our own stereo system that we had. I have a mixing booth that I set up and lighting controls. We put in some cameras so we can see what's going on. That's most of it. Or like they, you know, their concessions or whatever would be run off just the table. And we actually built the concession stand set up with a fridge and stuff. So going into this latest and maybe greatest edition and rendition of Secret Loft, what were some of the lessons that you took away from your past experiences that you went going into this that proved very helpful for you in running things? Good, like, maybe universal takeaway is really the importance of planning has helped a lot. So really organizing and presetting things before a show. So an example might be, like, if I know a band is coming in or we have a live show, rather than waiting for the band and then setting up the stage around them where I'm stuck if they get there late for sound check, for example... I just preset the whole stage as if I know what the band is going to do. And then all the stuff is there. Because mm-hmm. adjusting that once they're in place is much easier, it turns out. When they learned it, it's very easy to produce comedy shows. And we do a lot of it because a lot of comedians want to have shows. There's a really high demand for it right now, which is awesome. And it is a very kind of pure art, I guess, in that it is a person with a microphone. And their job is to entertain an audience. So we just set up the microphone and, you know, can have a comedy show. You know, a really big thing I've learned is the importance of documenting stuff. We for, we're like we're fortunate that we know some photographers. I want to give a shout out to Nick McManus, who's a guy who takes Polaroid photos. He's been featured in Vice and a bunch of places. And I've known him since early 2014, so we have some great photos that he took. A friend of mine, Tack Wind is his name, lived in that very first garage apartment, and he took some really great photos. So it's really nice. I mean, I've been doing this for seven years, but I can look back and actually see photos of stuff. And if anything, I wish I had more photos of a bunch of shows we did or... We did a lot of like crazy themed costume parties when I lived in the McKibben Lofts. 
And like there's photos of some of those, but a lot of those there aren't. And it would be nice to look back at that stuff. And the prints that I do have, a lot of them I've like blown up and even framed them. So it's nice to have that that history. You want to preserve it. Is there anything that goes into running a venue that like your average person might not realize goes into the process? It's always surprising because the average person doesn't realize that you have to pay rent as a commercial <laughs> space. It's and it seems so obvious from my perspective because I pay it every month. But I've totally had people complain about the price of a show or a band is like, well, can we just do this as a as a free show? And we'll just come in. And I'm like, well, no, we have there's a rental fee to use the space. And they're like, well, you know, you guys could just do it for publicity or something. And it's like, no, I have to give several thousand dollars to my landlord at the end of the month. And that, too, I would say the margins are low. The we we're not making money. I've if I added up my hourly rate, it's like five dollars an hour or something, you know. And obviously, that's that can't be why you do it. Because if it was, I would be terrible at it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you do it because you because you love it. But I think a lot of people don't realize the overhead. Why secret loft? It's got a ring to it, mm-hmm. I suppose. It's really ironic because we came up with the name while it was in a garage in like 2012. And it was a friend who just was like, it's got it should be Secret Loft. That's, that's what I was like, it's good. And so that's what we made the original Facebook page. And then, funny enough, I moved into a loft after that, and it was in the McKibben Lofts. And we moved in there. We originally, it wasn't going to be just my thing. I wanted it to be run like a collective. I didn't want the responsibility of having to always host the party. So I actually, the original conception back in, say, 2014 was, no, like, you know, my friend Robin, who lives in the basement, will host, you know, a party and his lot, his loft will be like the space, you know, it'll be this friend of mine who lives on the third floor and it'll be their loft. So it's secret because we'll reveal the location of which loft it's in when it happens, but it's in the McKibben lofts. Mm-hmm. That ended up not panning out because everybody just liked it when I hosted the party. <laughs> but the name stuck and it's catchy. And then it turned out to work really well. Advice if you ever trademark something. If you put a kind of random word that isn't necess- doesn't necessarily mean anything, like secret, in front of loft, it makes it a really distinctive and powerful trademark. Huh. It's, it's hard to get yelled at for infringing, basically. In your eyes, what is it that makes Secret Loft such a standout venue for guests and attendees of events? Oh, well, thank you for calling it a standout venue. Uh, first off, I'll, I'll acknowledge... The compliment. We do get a lot of people tell us a lot of times that they ha- they feel very comfortable in the space. And I've said before, I think part of it is because I don't know if, if I'm capable of making a venue that doesn't feel like a Brooklyn living room. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of it. You come in there and it's got cute lighting. It has a lot of like art and stickers from performers who've been there that we've put up. Everybody who works there is my friend or was my friend and then started working the door are coming into work sound, all the performers we know and like. So there's none of that kind of professional distance that you feel at a lot of spaces. So I think you very much pick up on that. The ambiance is that like uh, whoever's working the door or concessions is like, you know, my friend and they're friendly with you and everybody who comes in there kind of picks up on that vibe. Mm -hmm. When it comes to booking guests and artists for the, the space, do you have like a criteria or vision that you try to like adhere to? So we've been asked or we've 
thought ourselves of what would be our mission statement. It's if you, I don't know, when you read your five minute MBA, it's yeah. like come up with your what's your mission statement. So the the phrase we came up with was building community through artistic expression, and it seems to fit a lot of what we do. So you know, breaking that down is that if you know, artistic expression is very vague, obviously, but the idea of building community. So when is the criteria for a performance? You know, for like, I book the comedy shows and I book a lot of the music. And a lot of that is like music is I don't want a band to just send me a pitch. I don't care like how many followers they necessarily have or what blogs they've been featured on. If they send me a bill and it sounds like a good time and they're going to have some friends come out or, you know, one band is touring and they're going to get other bands to support them, that there's going to be a community in the space, right? And they'll be adding to our community is much more important to me. For comedians too, I have a very... I don't know, right? There's debates in comedy about what you are allowed to say or not or what is okay. And I think I have a very like broad understanding or appreciation for different styles of comedy. At the same time, I don't I personally don't like comedy that I feel is punching down. Yeah. Um, or that's being offensive for the sake of just, I don't know, offending a group that, that is already maybe marginalized. Uh huh. So I don't book it. I've actually thought about this. Should we have shows that cater specifically to say a marginalized group? And I feel in some ways if you can just I don't know. I would say have principles, be very accepting, be nice, treat everybody kind of as your friend. You can get to that point without explicitly um, designing programming for it. Yeah, I, I would agree, especially with uh, the like, secret surf circus and street me. That intentionally or not has a lot of representation for queer artists and queer people of color. That's very nice and refreshing. Yeah, there's some shows out there, and I always kind of laugh. Like, there's Urban Burlesque yeah, is a thing. Urban comedy show or comedy lineups that feature, or, you know, distinctly feature women. And it is good that those are out there because those performers need a platform, and these are definitely, like, probably predominantly more, like, if the scene or if the booker is, like, not a person of color or not queer, maybe is not booking from those communities. But at the same time, if, if you are out there and you, like, are seeing who's like out there performing or you're purposely booking a lineup that's diverse because it makes for a better lineup and a better show a lot of that stuff will happen naturally but there's a line to walk you know at the same time i'm not going to say it's not important to pay attention to has being a musician yourself and performing as a musician informed how you run a venue at all or has running a venue at all uh, informed how you go about being a musician in any way it totally has. Both ways, actually. It's been this really great. And I actually, I say a lot when we book, or somebody will ask me, how did you get such and such, like an aerial performer or such and such a comic who is way above our level? We punch above our weight. And that we're, we're a small venue that's, you know, seats 75. But, like, we have very good sound for the room because I care a lot about it. So we have a speaker system that is, like, more than enough of a match for the venue we treated the room. We have a very nice lighting system that works. And all of our gear always works. So if a microphone breaks or a cable is like shorted, for example, like that doesn't go back with the other cables. I like put it in the pile and eventually go fix them or whatever. So everything works consistently. And a big part of that is because I was a musician and I knew. I knew venues that sucked. Venues where the sound guy didn't care, where they rushed you to get on or off stage, for example. And so that definitely informed how we run our own shows. Going the other way, having a venue, I actually realized the importance of lighting. 
So when I perform with Lily in our pop duo, we bring our own, we have a mobile lighting rig that we bring out and it's programmed MIDI. So we actually have our own little light show that we hmm. set up so we can play like a house party or a room that's just got very basic lighting or whatever and then put on this kind of dazzling show. It didn't take too long to put together once I knew how to program lights. Have you had your like, oh, wow, I can't believe we actually booked this person moment yet? And if so, what has that looked like? We had Chris Gethard perform huh. on our show. And the reason that was so amazing, because he, he's kind of known for he'll go, I mean, he came up in Brooklyn, yeah. in, in Williamsburg, actually. But he's known for kind of, he's into like quirky shows like our, our venue or whatever. But uh, I think it was four years ago, a friend of mine from college, I went to his bachelor party and we went to a theater in Arlington, Virginia and saw Chris Gethard in this giant, you know, 300 seat theater. And he, you know, did a great like hour set. And to the to then meet him in, you know, my little venue and then see him perform for, this, you know, 75 people. And so I like, of course, I like snapped a photo of that and sent it to my friend. And I was like, hey, guess who's performing in my venue tonight? And so that was a cool one. Does, like, being written about, like, um, like New York Times and their compilations of events have, like, put you in there for, like, the stuff to do this week, like, how much does that matter or mean to you personally? The first time, it's really great. So this was actually very early for us. This was, like, our first, like, big write-up. We were featured in Time Out New York, They and this was in like I think 2015 because we had our comedy show that was going one of the producers of the show at that time I guess she had like a connect and so she got us listed or she said they were just gonna do a roundup of comedy shows is what we thought but it turned out to be this article about the the top secret things to do in New York City and shout out to Tack Wind my former uh, roommate from the garage days and this was funny because we were in the McKibben Loft we sent them a photo from the previous incarnation of Secret Loft but it's a great photo of Lily performing of us at like a party playing for this like cool garage. And so that that was the cover photo. And so I remember I didn't know that we were in timeout. They didn't even tell us. And so I was like checking our Facebook. I was like, why do we have and this was back when everybody actually used Facebook in like <laughs> 2015. But uh I was like, wait, why do we have eight hundred new you know, we had eight hundred Facebook fans for the page. I was like, why did this double? And then you know, I checked five minutes later. I was like, and we have another, like, 500. And so it was that. We, you know, we were basically the cover story photo or whatever for, for Time Out New York, which was hilarious. And so I remember my, it wasn't, yeah, it was, like, the super for the building, actually, who's a younger guy in the McKibben Loft saw that <laughs> article. And he's like, he called me. He was like, we need to talk about your, your apartment venue. <laughs> I know you've been asked this a lot. But I'll ask again for the sake of listeners, uh, do you have any advice for those interested in the starting and running their own event space? It really would be that you should start. I have talked to people one-on-one -on -one before, but the whole thing, I mean, so much of what we do, it's just that DIY ethos. And it is. I you know, grew up in the Northern Virginia suburbs putting on punk shows with friends at our houses and our you know, people's basements and then had a band in college and then you know, started putting on my own shows you know, after that. And it really is that. I mean, you you learn by doing it, right? And, like, people will gravitate towards it if it's a fun scene that, that people are into. It's community is really what drives a lot of it. But 
while we have you know while we're in our community hanging out it's cool to also see like a nice performance but yeah the the main advice is is start doing it people have asked me and thought they needed a business plan or they need to get a pile of money together so they can go buy the gear to do the thing you don't really need to do any of that stuff if you talk to people you'll find someone with a pa or an amp and you can do a show wherever and there's tons of places around the city so many bars that are desperate for just programming they'll let you use their back room on a tuesday so like Get people together and whatever your artistic pursuit is, you know, put it together. Make a community around it. With that, where can people find you, follow you, and or consume your media? So to find out more information about Secret Loft, you can visit our excellent website, secretloftnyc.com. You can follow us on Instagram, at secretloftnyc. Uh, also on Twitter, at SecretLoftNYC, where we just tweet links to stuff that's on the Instagram and on the website. Look us up on Eventbrite. We have a Yelp page. We're on TripAdvisor. <laughs> um, as for my personal music, you can uh, go into Spotify and type in Strangers on the Internet. Or my previous project uh, with Lily, Lily Wolf, L-I-L-L-Y, Wolf, is very popular in Europe, actually. Fascinating. Uh, like, yeah, that's a, that's another interview. But, um, <laughs> oh, and I will. I want to plug because we didn't get to it in the actual interview. We've been doing a lot of with the Democratic primaries going on. We're recording this tonight at the Iowa caucuses. We support the Democratic Socialists of America, so we have a fundraiser comedy show that we do, uh, and we've been watching the Democratic debates too. And we didn't get into the the, the political aspect. Is just me and Lily. Is a because we can. Uh-huh. And we have a venue, a thing we do. Um, so yeah, look for those events. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot.